0: we've been in what we call a weed patch of self-love, all the ways in which love for self can corrupt true love for God and love for others. And we talked about that where we said, hey, from the beginning we were meant to love God with everything we are and to let that love spill over to others. But sin corrupted that and inverted the order back to the garden with Adam and Eve. And now until today that we are first then lovers of self, maybe we're lovers of others second because we see them as a means to an end of our own satisfaction. And so love can become self-seeking, manipulative, try to get what I want out of it and last certainly not least then whatever might be left over for God is lip service maybe in some you know divine form of karma I do some things for him and I'll get something back and that's what sin does it inverts it it turns it inside but the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ the greatest act of love the demonstration of God's love to us puts it back in the right order that it is God first and that's what Christ said, the greatest command to fulfill is loving God, and it is others second, loving our neighbors, and third comes as you love yourself, because you know how to do that. That's innate, that's inborn. It's just sin makes us want to love ourselves completely and others only as it serves our own ends. So we've seen that weed patch, and maybe we're tired of weeding, and uh, by the grace of God now we get to something new today, which is what I'll call a flower bed of true love in verses six and seven. That we're maybe done pulling some weeds and today we get to look at a flower and it's an elegant flower and it has a striking quality that I would say is what Paul now has, has saved for the end. Maybe I could say it's the best for last, but I don't want to overpromise and under But to look at love in, in verse 6 and 7 and see how there's a center to it, the lifeblood of this flower, the stalk of it, the middle, the pistil, and then there's four Petals that grow around that main truth. And that's coming in verse 7. So let's read it together and then we'll look at the center of it, what holds it together, and then what comes out of it by way of application. So follow with me 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 7, the excellent virtues of love. Love is patient, love is kind, it is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Love does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This is God's lovely word to us without stain or blemish. May His Spirit use it in our hearts to conform us to the image of His Son, holy and blameless before Him in love. Let's start with the second part of verse 6. Love rejoices with the truth. This is that center of a most beautiful flower, from which all the good in verse 7 will grow. And in that one statement, love rejoices with the truth, we find a phrase that cannot be improved upon. I could speak with the tongues of all men and angels, and there's no better way to say, when you peel it all back, what's the starting point of love? What do I have to know foundationally about love for, for all those other virtues to make sense? It's the center of the flower. It's where the life is coming out. And it's that marvelous statement, love rejoices with truth. Before I even pull it apart and examine it, can you testify that in what we just sang, by way of experience, the wonder and the joy of love rejoicing with the truth in those moments preceding the sermon? That's what love for God does. When when you read those statements of truth about Jesus Christ, when on that third day, He arose, and He triumphed over death, and we say, Death, where is your sting? And why why did you applaud? And why did your voice go higher? And why were your affections moved? Because love rejoices with the truth. Now, in any given number of songs we sang today, there's a range of affections. I'm sure for some of you even sing in the song of, that's then we will see and we will know and maybe first comes to your heart, maybe a loved one that's gone to be with the Lord. And you're thinking about their faith becoming a sight and yours isn't yet. And so there's maybe, there's maybe joy and sorrow in that moment. We're singing about Christ and His rejection and His death and there's a moment of sorrow there, but it's mixed with What? Joy. Because what's true about the gospel is what holds all of our affections together. It's the truth of it. And that if we put up songs to sing here this morning that weren't true, you you can put the best melody to them and invite people to sing along, and you wouldn't be moved. You may have a shallow something, you know, churches that in fact try to attract um, people to come by singing secular music a friend was recounting to me a, a visit he made to a church down uh, in the Georgia area um, in Atlanta and they opened their service with like a U2 jam and uh maybe it was like something at least redeemable like where the streets have no name or still haven't found what i'm looking for and you know on some superficial level you can connect with that and it's it's U2 we all love them or maybe not but all that being said maybe there was some amount of like Joy, mirth, happiness there. But love wasn't connecting with the truth there in the way that it just did 10 minutes ago. Because you're singing about the greatest truths. Not some truth common to man. We're all looking for something we can't find. But to sing truth about God and His Son and Him dying for us and Him being raised again and we get eternal life in Him For the true Christian, what's the connecting point with love and truth in that moment? It's you rejoice in it. Like Psalm 87:7, the psalmist writes, All my springs of joy are in you. So when you sing here on a Sunday morning, or when you listen to the word of God or the affections of love and joy interacting in your heart, it's a good litmus test maybe your love has grown cold. Maybe because it hasn't been what? Connecting to the truth as it should. Probably directly connected to your time in the Word and reading and meditating on the Scriptures. Because then when you come here and it's put the music and God's wired us in a way, mind, heart, and soul, and body where you just get into it. And we get into it in various degrees. Some sing louder than others, raise their hands, or clap, or look down, or pray, whatever it might be. But what that is an expression of is what's going on in our hearts. And what's going on in our heart are the affections affections for Christ, our love for Christ, our joy in Christ, our sorrow for sin, our sorrow for brokenness. But it's all there. So when Paul is trying to help these believers see, like, what's going wrong in your church, Corinthians? You have all the gifts, he says. You can express them in speaking and in something spectacular like prophecy or tongues. You can have faith to move mountains, but you see, if you're lacking love for each other, if you have those gifts without graces, he says it's nothing. But also, on the other hand, if you have a bunch of truth in chapter 8 and you're growing in knowledge... And you're not loving people. You're losing out there too. So love rejoicing with truth for the Christian has to be married together. And what marries it together, what holds it together, the harmony you find between love and truth is you rejoice. through of the Spirit is love, joy. Right there out of the gates. I mean, in a church maybe you go to and, and you have visited whether you were checking churches out like ours or whether you were a guest there just one week and maybe you, you left there and if somebody were to ask, hey, how, what was that church like? If it was a healthy church, a church that exalts Jesus Christ, a church that proclaims His gospel faithfully, teaches His Word, is making disciples, that it's going to come down to two things that you're going to walk away and say about that church. Well, it it would be summarized, you would say, hey, the main thing is they love God. (laughs) It's a people that love God. And then somebody might want to tease that out and say, well, how do you know that? Well, it's demonstrated in their love for the truth and their love for people. And you marry those things together. And I was there and these people have joy in the Lord. They sing with joy. They, They listen intently to a sermon with joy. That's what you would walk away from a healthy church with you would see that there's light there, which is an expression of truth in the scriptures. God is light and there's no darkness at all. But you would also say there's love there. And and we always have to remember these are not enemies to reconcile. This verse shows us that love rejoicing with the truth. This is a band of brothers. They're in fellowship, love and truth are. And you know, love and truth are in fellowship when joy is the connector. A church that would health is healthy would say we rejoice in being a church church of love and a church of truth. Not one or the other, even though in our own whatever you want to call it, our own makeup, maybe again, and I've said it before, we might lean to one side or the other as we talk about you know are you you know truth Christians or one of those love Christians, as if we have to decide between the two, even though we can evaluate our lives and say, yeah, maybe I'm a little more prone to get into the study and, and excited for the truth and somebody's like yeah I just I just I need people around me and um, but at the end of the day they have to be together in a healthy Christian and in a healthy church it'd be like me asking you um, hey in the dead of winter here when it's cold and dark outside should we turn on the lights or should we turn on the heat which would you want you want to show up in a church that we've well, got the lights on and you could see because it's dark out in that 9 a.m. service when you get into the dead of winter. But we cut the heat. And so you'd have a really light-filled room, and you could see clearly, but you're shivering. And rather than somebody do the loving thing and turn on the heat, you say, just put on another sweater. Is that what the church is to be? All light and no heat? Or on the other hand, hey, we've got to cut costs... Uh, no light, but we'll turn the heat on, then what would that church be like? It'd be chaos. You'd be bumping around each other in the dark, maybe having a good time doing it. No order, no instruction, no, no. You don't know which aisle to walk through, where your seat is anymore. You sit on their lap, but they're really nice people. All heat, no light. You see what this verse is showing us? The the foundational to the experience of the Christian in a healthy, growing, local church is love rejoicing with truth. Turn on the lights. Turn up the heat. Because it's a both-hand. And you can probably um, transpose that to your personal life. How you live out your Christian faith. And maybe sometimes you see one of those clearly, but not the other. And this beautiful, wonderful verse tells us that it's both-and. It's not an either-or. And this is the the center point through which the application of how love is to do some amazing things starts with a love for the Word and truth of God, which is our main point today. The center of this flower from which all healthy petals grow is this. True Christianity. Rejoices in God's Word by loving it deeply at all times and living it out daily in all circumstances. That's that's what 6 and 7 put together are going to do. True, real Christianity, Paul is trying to tell these believers in Corinth, will rejoice in God's Word because love rejoices in the truth. By loving it deeply at all times. I want to know more of that truth, but then I'm taking it and in love, living it out daily daily. In all circumstances, because verse 7 is going to show us every circumstance that it's hard to live out and love people in, where your love is going to be tested. But if love rejoices in the truth, if the foundation of that truth is the gospel of Jesus Christ that takes all of the things that self-love wants to twist and turn inward and cuts them off at the root and says no I'm going to replace it with a rejoicing in the truth of the gospel how do you what's the antidote to the poison of self-love it's rejoicing in the truth of God's love for you in Christ the gospel love rejoicing in the truth what truth the highest truth there is the truth that brings us the greatest joy I mean, there's wonderful truths we can sing about God. We can have songs like Holy, Holy, Holy and others like that and take out particular dimensions of God's character. But the one that raises in our hearts the greatest affection is when we sing of God's love and when we don't sing of it in general terms, but we sing of it in the most specific way God demonstrated His love in the gospel. So that's our starting point today for believers. How do you, how do you live amongst people that are going to sin against you in the church or outside of it? How do you bear with them, believe, and hope, and endure? You start with this. Love has to rejoice with the truth. And Paul has been teaching these Corinthians, and we've said it, that love, the truest love, doesn't just grow out of some mindless experience. As these Corinthians, some of them were practicing it. They just wanted to drum up in this church some some emotional, ecstatic experience. But it wasn't tethered. To a love of God's truth. And yet, there was also in this church these Corinthians that, because of their background in the philosophies of the day and who's the smartest guy in the room, who studied under who, just as he was saying, love isn't gonna grow its healthiest just over there in the euphoric and the ecstatic, it's not gonna grow over here in just some intellectual endeavor. Who just knows the most? Who's the best speaker? Who has the most knowledge? If the problem over here is it's not rooted in a love for God's truth, then over here, this person that's just making it some mind affair, this some I know the most, is they've got a problem with what? The truth of God's love. But there has to be some warmth with that light. And so you see how he has to minister to this whole church, but he brings them back to this one solution that our love at its best expression will grow out of a rejoicing relationship to truth, hearing it, delighting in it. And why he's exhorting them in this is because you need to obey it. Because you could say all that stuff about the heart and the mind and what's going on inside of you, but you know what the truest test is in 1 John? Obedience. Do you live it out? Do you take truth your confession and profession of Jesus Christ? Do you take the call to love? How can you say you love a God you don't see and you hate the person you can't see? And those marry together in what in 1 John? Obedience to it. Obedience to the command. 1 John 2, 4 and 5. Our love and action is proof of the validity of our confession to be children of God. John writes right out of the gates in in that letter, the one who says, I've come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, whoever obeys the word, the command to love, you know what that shows? In him, the love of God has been truly perfected. Isn't that? That when, when you see someone else's life living out, obeying the command that they hear and delight in to love God and love others, the proof is in them loving other people, keeping the word. And he concludes by saying, that's how we know we're in him. And that's why then in 3 John he can say, I have no greater joy than this to hear of my children walking in the truth. Loving God, loving others brings the greatest joy. Do you see how in John's life, the apostle of love, the connector between these people obedient to the truth and loving one another evokes joy in his heart? Because love rejoices in the truth. And you have to have all three of those working together. So maybe this morning, the first question to just ask is, do the affections of love and joy come alive in you when you hear the word of God and are expressed in your obedience to the commands of God? Do the affections, just sitting here this morning, do the affections of, of love and joy for God come alive in your heart and hearing his word and in the eager anticipation of obeying it, that you're, you're sitting there not saying, oh, this is just another burdensome sermon. Because in 1 John 5, he writes, his commandments aren't burdensome. As in, oh, what a drag. Rather than, oh, that's a reminder of how I'm supposed to live. I needed that. And, 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 and some love and some joy come alive again because they're responding to what? The call of the truth of the Word of God because you're a child of God. And you're to be an imitator of him. So it's just a child responding to the voice of its parent. Saying, oh yeah, I love my father in heaven. I love his son who died for me. I rejoice now that this is how I'm supposed to live. If none of that's true in your heart this morning, I mean, if that is hitting nothing, if love doesn't rejoice with the truth right now in your soul, some self-examination would be called for, wouldn't it? I mean, if really, honestly, there's nothing connecting between loving God and loving His Word, and then there's some joy in you, just some piece of it, some small amount. You have to do some self-examination. Maybe it's your love has grown cold, and that love can't rejoice in the truth because the truth maybe hasn't been a regular part of your diet lately. But if it's just nothing, a not in sight at all, You have to ask, have I been what? Transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's just asking a question. Has the love of God really come into my life and understanding the gospel? And for some of you this morning, maybe you're sitting there and really receiving that. And maybe now your question is, what is the gospel again? It's been a while. Or maybe you're saying, I've never even heard the gospel. I've seen some TV version or I've seen it mixed into some politics or... Well, what's the gospel? Here's the simplest and surest definition of the gospel I can give you. God, your creator, sent his son, Jesus Christ, to earth to die for sinners. That's the good news. Now, there's a whole lot that goes into that message. But fundamentally, it teaches you a few things. One, it teaches you about yourself. That you're a sinner. That you can't. Love God perfectly, let alone other people perfectly. And to prove you can't love God perfectly, just look around and ask yourself, how well do I love people around me? Because if my evidence of love for God is seen in how I love other people and I'm failing at that, then maybe I don't love God as much as I might say I do. First John brings that point up very directly. So recognize you're a sinner, but then recognizing your sin, you recognize your Savior, that Jesus Christ perfectly Loved God for the 33 years he was alive. And he lived in the same fallen world that you live in. With the same type of sinners around him. And some of the people that were supposed to be the most righteous treated him the worst. And he never sinned in response. He was perfect. He never reviled and returned. Never fought back. He was without sin completely, and so there's that great connection. I need to be right with God my creator, this perfect and holy God. I can't keep his law perfectly. Who can? Christ did. And then on top of just living a perfect life that you didn't live, he went to the cross and died for your sins to be your substitute. He became sin, who knew no sin, so that you could be the righteousness of God in him. That's called substitution. He takes your sin away. You receive by faith His righteous life and His substitutionary and sacrificial death credited to you. That's the good news. But there's one more part of the gospel you need to understand today. It's not just, um, it's just not a statement to just leave alone and say, oh, that's nice. It's actually a command over your life. When Jesus came, He had to preach, repent and believe for the kingdom of God is here. The gospel calls you to a decision. It gives you the facts about where you stand, but then it also stands over you in judgment. That if you reject it, that's not neutral, that's negative. That the wrath of God remains and abides over you. And in God's kindness and patience, He gives you time. But why would you waste? If you understand in your heart of hearts this morning that you need Christ, you need His righteousness, you need His forgiveness, then call on Him and be saved right where you are right now, with what you know of yourself and what you know of him. Call upon the Lord Jesus Christ to save you, to cancel the debt of sin that you owe God, to remove the wrath of God that abides over you, to give you eternal life, to give you his righteous life. That's the good news. And for those of you who love rejoices in the truth because you've been saved, I pray that even in the last five minutes of hearing the gospel proclaimed again, you feel like getting saved all over again. Because it's true, isn't it? It's that good news? God did that for me? He did. Maybe it was 40 years ago, 4 years ago, 4 days ago. He did that for me. And I want to rejoice in it. I do rejoice in it. And that stokes the flames of joy in our hearts. Now, that's the center from which established, now for Christians, you can move into verse 7 and say, wow, love can do some pretty impossible things. Yeah, when it rejoices with the truth of the good news of the gospel, God's love for you in Christ, it can do some amazing things. So let's look at them. We'll call them the petals to the flower. The first one is love can bear all things. Love bears all things, verse 7. And I call that grace, that you can have grace to others. A love that bears all things, or the word bears means covers something to protect it. Doesn't that just give you a good picture in your mind of what love bearing all things, sins against you by others in the church or outside of it, that love can bear it? How? It it can cover that person's indiscretion against you, their offense against you. As First Peter 4, 8 says, it can cover a multitude of sins in love because you know you've been covered. Right? You have. You have. How have I been covered? Blessed is the man whose, sins have been, whose, sin, whose transgressions have been covered, Who, whose sins have been paid for who are protected under the everlasting love of God in Christ. So you know how you can cover it. I'm just saying in that first step towards the person that sins against you, it can bear it because if that word means covers, as in like a roof or a protection in the time of Paul's writing, then you know exactly what it's calling you to do. My love can cover that because God's love in Christ covered me and it covers me eternally and that they'll never be tucked and pulled back it's got me covered in every dimension it's a protecting and covering love i would call it a forbearing love it's the opposite of the attitude that says i can't bear to be around that person anymore really you can't bear to be around them anymore so when you come back to God for the umpteenth time, confessing your sins and falling short of his glory and not loving people, and he, does, is he up in heaven with the angels saying, I can't bear to hear Ash off again? Could somebody deal with him? So how do you deal with others when you can't bear to be around them anymore? And that's what it looked like in the church Paul was writing to. You had some self-loving Christians who were hard to love, not unlike people today, and how did Paul deal with them? He bared with their immaturity. I mean, he let them know the truth because love rejoices with the truth, but he bared with them. He kept writing them letters. He visited. They couldn't wear out his love. They couldn't wear through it. He never stopped covering them with it. I would just say is, is maybe the one thing that holds you up in this verse to really like embrace it is maybe not the bearing, the covering, the protecting, um, but the... Uh, <laughs> The part that says all. And um, look at those four, four things. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So, you know, the, the way love is expressing itself in action, which is what love does, is, this, is different. What's, what's the same, which is why this is a rhetorical device. He, he's, is he being literal with all things? Well, look back at the top in 13, 2, and 3, when he's saying, I, have, I know all mysteries and all knowledge and all faith all my possessions, he's he's using that to be a little bit, uh, add some hyperbole to it, to just push it out in your minds to the extent. But what love doesn't do in bearing all things is ignore sin and and just say, we're just going to pretend it's not there. Why do we know that? Because earlier in Paul's letter, Paul deals with sin, 1 Corinthians 5. So love, rejoicing with the truth, when you think about it that way, can't tolerate sin, can it? Love can't rejoice in unrighteousness, and yet in 1 Corinthians 5, they're rejoicing in unrighteousness. They're allowing open, high-handed sin, evident for everybody in this congregation to know of, to go on, undisciplined. So love rejoicing in the truth can say, hey, if you really love that so-called brother, verse 11, you won't associate with them anymore. Why? Because their lifestyle is completely out of step with the lifestyle of somebody that's actually born again, a real Christian. And if you just kind of keep like sweeping it under the rug, Corinthians, and not dealing with that sin, that person may be self-deceived, they're a so-called brother, and they'll stand before God one day and go to hell because you didn't speak up. So speak the truth in love. Go so far as he says for this Christian or so-called Christian in the congregation in Corinth. He just said, I've decided and you need to carry out to deliver that person over to Satan for the destruction of his chest. Church discipline, put him outside the church so that in the day of judgment, their soul will be saved. What's that trying to do? It's trying to wake them up to the reality that our love for you and our understanding of the truth of God's word Uh, there's no rejoicing to connect this here and you know how that feels don't you when you love somebody who says they're a christian and yet the truth of their life or the truth of what they say you know isn't true you can't rejoice with that person and i get questions right down this lane and you gotta have an answer i mean the question of the day today that i get from this series Adam, what do I do with this friend or this family member who, they're a male and and now they're saying they want to be a female? Or they're a female and they want to marry another female. What do I do? I've got that question probably three times in the last two weeks. What is 1 Corinthians 13, if this person's professing to be a Christian, what would 1 Corinthians 13 call you to do? Love bears all things, sure. But it's got to be able to rejoice in the truth. And if they're saying they're a Christian, but there's no truth in their life that accords with the word of God, you know you can't rejoice with that. You can bear with them in love. As in, you could say, I still love you, but here's the truth of the matter. I can't rejoice with you. You want me to come to that wedding? There's nothing true about that wedding. If God says marriage is between a man and a woman, then what you're attempting to do isn't true. So, my love for you can't just skip over that. I certainly can't rejoice with you, and I love you, but you got to know the truth. So, does this have some practical application for us today? I mean, it's front and center. In the news, and not just in the news, but in our lives. And that's just one example that I'm sharing because you're asking. But we don't have to do gymnastics with the scriptures. If we take, okay, love rejoices with the truth, I still got to bear with them. If I know the gospel is true, then I know there's what? There's something I can say to their condition. I can point them back to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but I can't look the other way or pretend to rejoice as loving as you might be in something you know is not true. And that's why I have to say what I say up here. And it's not to do this. It's just to say you need help figuring these things out. The word of God helps us, doesn't it? And isn't it amazing how I'm not saying it's going to be easy to have those conversations and to make those decisions. It's not easy. But I'm also not going to say that there's no answer. And it's too complicated to figure out. When you can take a verse like this and just walk through it and say, okay, if that's the way love works and that's the way truth works and there's got to be a link between love and truth that's called. I can rejoice in that. Then there's your answer, isn't it? So, how's your love for people in keeping fervent and love covering a multitude of sins? It stretches out sometimes our love needs a good gospel stretch as how, do, how long can we bear with others when they've hurt us and against us how far does God bear with you how far does his love stretch out for you that's that word keep fervent in your love in first Peter 4 it means fervent love is a stretching out to its furthest point when I think of that I think a of picture of like a newborn baby you know, when they wake up from that nap and they just like super stretch. It's kind of like your college kid when they sleep until 11. That's, that's stretching out to the furthest extent and that's how far our love stretches out to cover. Number two, love believes all things. We'll call that faith, the pedal of faith. A love that rejoices in the truth will be a love that believes all things. See, first, I mean, and there's a little bit of progression here. I don't want to, like, put a paradigm of, like, hey, here's the four steps to something. But there's an interrelationship between these four qualities, and in some ways you can probably move through them in a way that makes you, if you're saying, how do I deal with this person? Okay, step one, is my love bearing with them? Is it stretching out? Is it willing to cover and protect But now, what do I do? Do I believe them when they come back to me and say they're sorry? Which brings up the deep theological question, should Charlie Brown keep believing Lucy? (laughs) Right? I mean, that was the first thought that came to mind when I read, love believes all things. If Charlie Brown is like, Ashoff, what should I do? She keeps pulling the football on me. Well, clearly his love has been bearing all things with her for however long this has been going on. But should he believe her? No, Chuck, don't believe her. Yet if she really comes repentance explains why all these years it's just been a game, I might have different advice for her. You're bearing with it, but can you believe them? Well, again, what helps us here is going back to the center. Okay, love has to rejoice with the truth. Now, if I'm going to believe... This person who sinned against me and I'm bearing with them in the way they do that. Love bears all things. It keeps fervent in love. It stretches out. And now what they're telling me to believe them and take them at their word means I've got to know the truth about the situation, right? If I'm going to rejoice that this person's coming back to me to fix things like in this church and make things right, I got to know some things about the truth. I've got to be grounded in in the truth. I've got to know, even is what they're saying, does it sound like Christianity? Does it sound like repentance? Because love can ask those questions when it rejoices in the truth. I mean, biblical love rejects what? False teaching and false teachers. And we know that's all through the scriptures. So the question you might have about, does it believe all things? Well, we know we're not supposed to believe false teaching. Right? Are you with me? So, love doesn't rejoice haphazardly at everyone and everything that happens to take the name of God or Jesus when we know false teachers are out there. Mormons, they take the name of Jesus. Does love believe all things that they say? No. Again, love goes to them, bearing with them. It says, You're wrong about it. You got the wrong deity. Doesn't believe all things. Look at throughout the New Testament. Jesus says, "Beware of false prophets." John says, "Beloved, don't believe every spirit. Test the spirits to see whether they're from God." How do you know that? Do you know the truth? Second John ten eleven. If someone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, don't receive him into your house. Don't give him a greeting, for the one who gives him a greeting, as in says, "Yeah, we're cool," participates in his evil deeds. And then, I mean, you could go all throughout all of Paul's letters. This letter, Galatians, the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy, Titus. What? The matter is about false teaching. People advocating different doctrines that don't agree with sound words. All I'm bringing these up are to show you that there is a caveat to this love believes all things when it comes to what? False teaching. Just like in love bears all things, the caveat is hey, is this person living in open, unrepentant, rebellious sin and calling themselves a Christian? So if the issue of bearing all things is false Christianity, the issue here could be false teaching. And you, you can't rejoice with false teaching. Love can't rejoice with the truth there. So how do you navigate through this? Well, you've got to have a really close relationship with what then? The truth. You've got to know the Word of God. But you can't know it in a way that then becomes so puffed up in and of itself that it loses love back to in 1 Corinthians 8. Knowledge can make you arrogant, but love's going to edify. Yeah, you have to have that close relationship with the truth for love to rejoice with it. But if you're just getting into this own, like, oh, it's just about me and what I know, and nobody knows as much as me, and then you meet somebody, and, you know, um, and they say, hey, you, know, you knew them from a prior lifetime, and they were the worst of sinners, and then they say, yeah, you know, I've come to Christ, and they give their testimony. Does, does knowledge puff you up to the point where like, nobody can be a real Christian anymore but you? Or maybe somebody's joined our church, and now they're in your life group, and yeah, as you're getting to know them, you're like, oh, okay, um, they have a little bit different view over here in, in this one area of theology, whether it's eschatology or, you know, I'm talking secondary issues, and that makes you skeptical, and then, oh, and then they have some sin that you're like, man, I, I don't know, and like two weeks into getting to know them, you're like going to your life group uh, leader or your flock leader, like, yeah, I'm just not sure they're a Christian. They haven't read their Bible for two weeks. What? Like, that's how quick you're going to get there? That escalated fast. Love believing all things, it doesn't look the other way, but it, it's going to, you know, when you meet that person, and again, knowing the truth, yeah, that, their testimony sounds like they've trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, and even that might sound a little, okay, tell me a little bit more, but get to know them. Be patient with people, 1 Thessalonians 5. Patient with everyone. Give it some time. Again, you're not setting discernment aside here. Truth is helping you to discern, but love is allowing you to have that long suffering, isn't it? So you can initially have that instinct to love them. Take them at their word, but over time, look for the true fruit because the opposite is what the Pharisees were like. At the first sight of any sin, you're out. Now, the first sight of any sin in their life, they couldn't see. They could only see their own what? Their own righteousness predisposed to believe the worst about others but always believe the best about themselves sad how that works isn't it so the second quality of love here again qualified by love rejoices with the truth it knows what the truth is it can believe all things moving from there we go to love hopes all things and again you see maybe a little bit of building here that even after you've been bearing with this person in love and you've been trying to believe them they're just doing some things they're they're acting in such a way that you're like, man, my faith in that person has really been um, shattered again by their lifestyle, how they've treated you. And it can be a reality in the Christian life that we, we lose faith in someone. But does that call for us to lose, lose hope in not them, but lose hope in God? That's what love hopes all things what's the reference point for your hope for somebody that even when it's hard to bear with them in love and even when it's hard to believe them and take them at their word you don't lose hope in them because you don't lose hope in who god as romans 15:13 calls him the god of all hope and that that hope that you need to draw upon in romans 15:13 isn't one that you conjure up paul writes now may the god of hope fill you How about that? So you're not just kind of like wishy-washy, I just hope every... No, the God of all hope fills you with all joy and peace in believing, so there's faith, back to that last one, and that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So your hope, the source of it is God. The Spirit can fill you with what? Love and peace that you would abound in hope for what God can still do in their life. You don't give up on them because you don't give up on God. I mean, when you look at the work of God throughout the Bible, what do you learn about Him? I mean, is is the story of the Scriptures from cover to cover a story of like perfect Christian successes, faithful following, or is it a story of what? A lot of two steps forward, three steps back. Start with the book of Genesis. Before you even had Israel being called out, you had the book of Genesis and a bunch of really important people like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, his 12 sons. Did God give up on them? Did the story of redemption stop at the end of Genesis? All right, he's done. Have no hope. No, it picks up in Exodus and now God is going to use Moses to raise up Israel and then you read from Exodus through the end of the Old Testament. And does the Old Testament end with there's no hope? No Messiah, no chance for Israel. No, there's still hope because there's still a God who has love from everlasting to everlasting. How about you pick up in the Gospels? Now you move from Israel to the disciples. How many times did they fail, stumble, right up until the end, deny? Did God give up on them? How about the book of Acts through the end of the New Testament and then into 2023 in our church in your Christian life? has God given up on us so what 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 do we extract from that that we we learn about God and that he can do a lot of things we don't understand but one thing we do understand is he doesn't give up on his children because his love is an everlasting love and we're to be imitators of him as Ephesians 5:1 says it's a love that can hope that it's never too late for somebody to change including yourself Maybe you've been let down by people you love, family, friends, in the church. Love still hopes in God. Maybe you've been let down by yourself thinking you are beyond grace. Love still hopes in God. And you can extract out any number of people or situations that you find hard to love right now. And you can give up on every other tactic. You've tried them all. But what can't you do? You can't stop hoping in God. Right down to the last second. John MacArthur writes, "Even when belief in a loved one's goodness or repentance is shattered, love still hopes. When it runs out of faith, it holds on hope. As long as God's grace is operative, human failure is never final. Do you believe that? Do you need to hear that today? Is there someone that you've written off, thinking they're beyond the pale of God's grace? And I'm not saying again you're you're looking for that something in them. No, I mean they've maybe exhausted you to the point that they're you can't see anything in their life right now. But you can see beyond their life to what, the grace of God that can save the chief of sinners. That could call that prodigal back. That can redeem that marriage that seems broken beyond repair. And they can give hope to the single who's desirous to be married, give hope to the divorced or the widow that doesn't know what to do next. I mean, in every one of those situations, there's hope because there's a God of hope. And He can fill you with joy and He can fill you with peace. And by the power of His Spirit, you can abound in hope. Now, how do you do that? You go back to the center of the flower. Love rejoices with the truth. And if my hope is built off of love, and my love is predicated on knowing the truth, then a way to get hope back in your life is get back to God's promises, isn't it? You open up the Word and you find His promises. And you feed that fire with those logs. You throw them on every day. And you say, that's the only thing. I got got promises by faith, God. I got nothing I can see, and that gives us hope. Last application of love rejoices with the truth is that love has a certain grit to it. A love that rejoices in the truth will be a love that endures all things. Enduring is not the same as bearing with. Bearing with at the beginning of this verse is more something in the immediate, something that you respond to in the moment, but this word for endurance uh, it's, it's a word Paul pulls from the Greek military world for a soldier holding his position in a long battle or an army not giving up ground on a key part of a battlefield. It's a word that literally means to remain under something, to dwell under something, which is, gives this idea when you put that all together, you say, What does it mean that love endures all things? That, that love stays put. Love doesn't run, love doesn't quit. Love can take the hit. Love can endure the pain. Because anybody can quit. Anybody can give up. Anybody can take their ball and go home and say, I'm done with you. But enduring love. It's not about ego. It's not about trying to prove to someone you can love them no matter what they do to you so that you're exalted. True enduring love has one source of strength, supply, example, sufficiency. And it's the example of who? Christ in Hebrews 12. When you get this word endurance in your mind and how, how long and what's it like, don't go looking for any other example of it except for Christ. Hebrews twelve two to 3 fixing our eyes on Jesus. That's why I say don't look for anything else but the example of Christ. The author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despised its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who's endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So how can love endure all things? Well, first, we endure in love for others because his love endured for us. I mean, that's what kept Paul going with this very church that when he's writing these letters to, him, to them and they've been maligning him and reviling him and um, telling him all the things he doesn't do and the things he would suffer for them. He can say to them in 1 Corinthians 4, this is how I endure for you. I'm a fool for Christ's sake. I'm weak, but you're strong. This is to a church that's just run his name through the mud, disregarded his words to them and his example. You're distinguished, but I'm without honor. And he's not complaining, he's telling them the facts. To this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty, and we're poorly clothed, and we're roughly treated, and we're homeless, and we toil, and we work with our own hands, and when we're reviled, we bless, and when we're persecuted, we endure. How did Paul endure? Because he fixed his eyes on Christ. And he first never forgot that what? First Christ endured the hardest thing that he could never replicate, which is what? He endured the cross and it's shame. That's one thing that Christ endured that we aren't expected to replicate. Because one time, and it was finished, and he sat down at the right hand of God, and he accomplished your salvation. That enduring love none of us can match. But then it does say, consider him. Remember him who endured hostility by sinners against himself. That kicks in for us, doesn't it? There is an example to follow there. And why we remember him in the way that he endured hostility from sinners is so we won't grow weary and lose heart and give up and back down and go home and say, I'm done with it. Because he never did that. He not only didn't do that with the people that actually nailed him to the cross, he didn't, you know, whether it was the religious leaders whether it was Pilate. You know, he even had to endure what? He had to endure his own fleeing disciples. You know, the ones that the night before said, I'll follow you all the way to the end. And what's a beautiful picture of this enduring love is at the beginning of John chapter 13 in the upper room, the first memory that comes back to John's mind, the apostle who Jesus loved. As he writes, when we got up there into the upper room on the night of his betrayal, when he knew that it was his time to go out of the world, the hour had come for what? His death. He walked out of the room and said, Guys, I don't have anything left to give you. Sissy loved him to the end. He loved them to the max. He didn't leave anything back. He even knew he think, he knew everything was going to come on him within 24 hours. The wrath of God. The rejection of his father. He had to become sin so that we could become his righteousness. That darkness is weighing over him. And yet in that moment, John remembers he loved us to the end. So how far can your love go? It doesn't have to go that far in the sense you're never going to have to go to the cross for somebody else. He went to the cross for you, but you can learn from his example how to go further than you think you can. What seems unbearable, you can bear it in Christ. What seems unbelievable, you can believe it in Christ. What seems hopeless, you could have hope in Christ. And what seems impossible to endure is possible in Christ. But for you to go that far and in all those different directions, you've got to remember the center, don't you? That that love has to rejoice in the truth. The truth that God was willing to save you. And if He had that much love for you, how much love can you have for others? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you that though the grass withers and the flower fails, your word endures forever. And that that word that endures is is your very absolute truth that we can count on right now. For every circumstance that seems without hope, we have hope because your word tells us. For every person that seems that we can't endure with, and bear with your word. Not just tells us actually we can still hope in you and we can still bear with them, but that our love for them can rejoice with your truth of the gospel, that there is still hope. And so now, Spirit, may you do what Romans fifteen thirteen says. May you fill us with your peace, with your joy, with your love, May we abound in hope this morning. We ask in Christ's name, amen.